0: With, with AI, as opposed to a lot of technologies that get overhyped, you know, like the metaverse and all this stuff, it's going to change everything, that's probably overhyped. I think AI might be underhyped. If you ask anybody who's in this space and some of the experts, they realize just the world is going to change.
1: Welcome to Mayo Clinic Educator Central, brought to you by the Learning Solutions Center at Mayo Clinic. I'm Stacey Kraft, an assistant professor of medical education and senior instructional designer at Mayo Clinic. This episode is the fifth installment of our special limited series, Co-Occurrence. This limited series features discussions on and adjacent to AI in particular interest to this podcast, its intersection with the education, science, and development professions. In this series, we are focusing on conversations, exploring AI and related technologies. Now, we've been talking about this for a few months, but AI is transforming All types of education, including medical education. In fact, it has and is the potential for a revolutionary renaissance in how we approach medical education and all education from homework to authentic assessment, our foundations to ideation, immersive experiential moments to even personalization and customization, just to name a few. AI is changing the way that we learned, and its impact is profound. Of course, along with this comes growing pains, concerns about that scary space of ambiguity and the need to understand what is and what is ahead so that we can integrate and harness the potential for our work. In this episode, I am so excited to welcome Dr. Eric Gantworker to the podcast Dr. Gantworker is a pediatric otolaryngologist at Northwell Health and associate professor of otolaryngology at Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell. He holds a Master's of Science in Medical Education with a special focus on educational technology, educational research, and game-based learning from Harvard Medical School, and a Master's of Science in Physiology and Biophysics from Georgetown University. He is active in Harvard Macy Institute. Harvard Medical CME Online, and Backtable Innovations. Dr. Gantworker is recognized as an expert on the implementation of educational technologies and gaming with the Foundation in Educational Theory for Health Professions Education. He is also the former vice president, medical director of a medical video game company, Level X, from 2018 to 2023 that utilized game technology and psychology to create interactive experiences for healthcare professionals. Welcome, Dr. Gantwerger. Thank
0: you so much. I really appreciate you for having me on.
1: You've done a lot of work around using gaming to transform medical education. Would you mind giving an overview of your work in this area?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when I sort of came into this space, it was through the education portal, and I realized that there's a lot of people that come into this from either the gaming background or the business background or even other technology backgrounds. And really, my foray into this was coming from the clinical space into the education space. And specifically, when I finished my clinical practice, uh, my clinical training as a fellow, I got very interested in education and was very dissatisfied with the way that education was being delivered, and I knew there was a better way to do it. And so I actually just happened to be part of a new master's program that was starting at the medical school where I was at. And uh, it was the, because it was the first year I could make it whatever I wanted to. And so essentially what I decided was That's educational fun. technology. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. So I, it was just like happenstance, to be honest with you. It's all about being in the right place, at the right time, right? And so essentially what ended up happening was I enrolled in the master's, I got in, you had to be accepted in. And I basically created my master's program around product development, educational technology and game-based learning. And I got into a game-based learning course and learned a lot, you know? And basically it was the crossover between games and learning and how they really are parallels to each other and how game designers actually use the psychology and sociology to create games. And it was just a fascinating outlook. And then I had the opportunity to actually join a startup at the time that was using game-based technology to use the technology and psychology of video games to apply to healthcare health professions education rather. And that was really, again, just being at the right place at the right time and Getting my my hands dirty and doing product development, being part of a startup, it was an incredible experience.
1: That sounds like, yeah, happenstance is the perfect word for it, all kind of lining up for you in a perfect way. It sounds like that the spark then for synthesizing gaming and education came from your course. Did you have an interest in it earlier or what? Not everyone would be open to that at first,
0: yeah, absolutely. You know, I sort of grew up with games, you know, in the age of Nintendo and Atari. And I always joke because my brother is a neurosurgeon. I'm, I'm I'm, the dumb one, he's the smart one. And when <laughs> we were growing up, at 100%. And so when we were growing up, we used to play video games, and, you know, he'd hit my hand if I did something wrong in the video game. I had the opportunity <laughs> to actually rotate with him as a medical student. He was a resident, he was a, a chief resident, and we were operating, and I did something wrong, and he slapped my hand the same way that he did when we were playing video games. <laughs> and, you know, just that I started to see these analogies between how people operate board to a new world, a new domain in the game space, which includes a totally new language, a totally new set of rules that aren't even established in reality. And people just onboard seamlessly into these environments and they start to learn and they move from rules to strategy very, very quickly. And they onboard and develop skills as the challenge increases over time within the game. And it just sparked something in me. And I'm a theory geek, educational theory geek. And I just started to realize all the different crossovers between how people play games, how people learn playing games, and how we learn in education in general, then specifically in healthcare.
1: Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. Now, this is a little bit of an ancillary question, but I have to ask,, uh, what is one of your favorite games from your childhood?
0: Ooh, ooh, that's a tough one. Uh, my brother and I always loved playing uh, Wolfenstein 3D. It was a, a really, really fun game. And then Metroid, you know, all the old Atari games was really, really fun. And I go back and I'm really terrible at them now. Like, Oh, are you? Oh, I'm <laughs> just, oh, just terrible at them. Uh, I was like, I remember there was some special move you had to make here. There's This wall moved. Uh, you know, it was really funny.
1: Yeah, you kind of remember those things. Yeah, I, I love games as well. And, you know, I, I still play them. But <laughs>
0: so. oh, 100%.
1: You know, building on that, what your experience with gaming and you know that that history and the all of the learning theory that connects to it, you know, artificial intelligence is a hot topic right now, including generative AI, large language models, chatbots, and more. Obviously, they're at the forefront of of so many ed tech spaces. What potential do you see for AI to interface with? Other rapidly evolving technologies like games or even virtual reality, because games and virtual realities kind of blend as well. Uh, how long is the podcast? Uh, just kidding. <laughs> um,
0: but as, essentially, you know, this is obviously exploding. We always talk about hype and all these new technologies that get introduced. They go through that Gartner harp cycle. I literally just gave a talk this morning about AI. Actually, it was a workshop with medical professionals who were uh, in the same master's program as I.
1: And well, essentially the, what
0: we talked about. Yeah, go yeah ahead.
1: what's the Gardner Hype Cycle? What oh, it's so the
0: Gardner Hype. So you've heard of, of the Hype Cycle of you know early adopters to late adopters. And basically it's the process that any new technology goes through where people are co- sort of you know don't really know about it. They start to know about it. And then people are like super excited about it. This is the panacea. It's going to change mm-hmm. reality. And then it sort of goes over this peak and people start to say, well, it's not as good as it probably we thought it was. And then it sort of dips down and then goes back into this sort of what we call the plateau or the uh, you know the idea where we really figure out where it applies and where it actually means where it's meaningful. And Ooh. all technologies go through that sort of Gartner hype cycle and AI is really super hyped. XR was really super hyped when it first came out. Uh, well, it first came out in the 1960s, but it, it recently <laughs> got rejuvenated into the hype cycle. And I think we with with AI, as opposed to a lot of technologies that get overhyped, you know like the metaverse and all this stuff, it's going to change everything, that's probably overhyped. I think AI might be underhyped.
1: Uh, uh-huh. it's,
0: it's the one area I think it might be uh, underhyped. And if you ask anybody who's in this space and some of the experts, they realize just the world is going to change. You know, Bill Gates said that this is uh, as foundational as the internet, the computer, the personal cell phone, like that's how foundational this is going to transform our lives. And as medical educators and medical practitioners, to be honest with you, it's going to change how we practice medicine and we teach medicine a hundred percent. There is no doubt. So, you know, back to your question was, is, you know, where is it going to cross over with these other technologies? And I think there is a lot of opportunity already. These are being integrated into medical practice with gaming. Obviously, gaming lives, especially video games, live on the front edge, the cutting edge of technology. If you want to know what's going on at the cutting edge of technology, go to the Game Developers Conference in San Francisco every year in March. You will see where technology is because gaming is such an early adopter, and they really push the limits of these technologies. And that's, so fascinating for me coming from this world and learning all of the cutting edge technologies, all the motion capture, you know, all these, you know, avatar based, you know, these gesture based, all these things that they're doing in the game environment, like, oh, my God, we could do that in medicine. And that was really a spark for me working in the company that I worked worked for trying to realize where the crossover was, and it was very, very obvious. I think for extended reality, there's obvious opportunities with the different headsets, the different virtual patients, having an avatar, having a natural language conversation with a an AI uh, avatar, you know, expressions, you know, all the facial expressions and all the creation of content that can be enabled by AI that already is being used in games that very well could come to the virtual patient space very, very easily in simulation. There's so much crossover with all these technologies, and it's such a big space. It's so hard to keep track but it's so
1: exciting to be in the middle of it and try to figure out what's going on. Yeah. I had a conversation recently with a physician's assistant professor here at um, the Mayo Clinic College of Health Sciences, and they use VR. And, and we were talking a little bit about how, you know, there's AI in there in the conversations that their students are having in the the VR. And then the other thing I wanted to mention is kind of about what you said, you know, there's, it's moving so fast. It's like, technology is no longer new, right? It's emerging. And I think I'm stealing this from somebody who already had said this brilliant thing. Uh, I can't remember their full name, but um, that's a whole, I think, shift in the way we're looking at how technology is impacting us. We can't just say that we have this thing and we understand it. It's like constantly evolving. Really interesting insights. Do you have any, <laughs> this is such a weird question, so I don't know if it'll fit, but do you have any Ideas or anything that you find inspiring that you think is going to happen or, you know, it's happening kind of in the very near future, like more concretely today?
0: Yeah, I mean, already we're talking about how ChatGPT and any of the large language models are going to be integrated into medical education. And I think that's the immediate, right? Because medical students are going to use it and uh, professors are going to start to use it. And the idea of, you know, listening to some of the experts in this space, like Eric Topol, and, you know, it's going to change the point of care. It's already changed the point of care, right? We already have point of care solutions that are integrating with AI to help us read radiology studies, figure out what radiology studies need to be read faster. MRI is being done faster using AI to predict the pixels. So it'll cut down the amount of uh, imaging time required to do an MRI, which is immense, You know, you think about all the applications of technologies that are happening today. You know, Eric Topol just had a Great podcast, or actually a great TED Talk that was put up, where he talked about how retinal scans are being used to diagnose diseases that were never intended for retinal scans. You know, they're diagnosing hyperthyroidism based on EKGs. They're, you know, all these different technologies that we don't even realize. Like just getting a retinal scan and EKG, they could diagnose like ten diseases, right? They can they can diagnose Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease before symptoms ever arise based on those based on a retinal scan, right? So these are the immediate uh, applications. One thing that Eric Topol just talked about in his TED Talk was the idea of keyboard liberation, that AI scribes and all these things can help us bring us closer to the patient and, and restore that patient doctor interaction or patient provider interaction. And I think that is so vital to understand how AI can enable that. The other is is understanding that patients come to clinical visits now having gone to ChatGPT. Instead of just WebND or Google ND, now they have ChatGPT, which is much better able to synthesize some of the information and questions. And they're actually coming to their doctor's appointments with questions generated by ChatGPT. What should I ask my doctor about thyroid disease, right? And so now they come with these generated and Clinicians need to be ready to answer some of those questions. And I think understand that 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 patients have access to this data and these tools just like we do. And I think from an education standpoint, you know, the workshop I did today opened, you know, these were technophiles too. These were people who were very tech forward and are already just using these Chat GPTs for real actual applications that they might use when they're teaching creating curriculum like we wrote a a, a grant outline we did a budget we did statistical analysis using chat gpt and you know all these different things we create a virtual patient we created a chatbot a virtual chatbot where the chat gpt took on a persona of a patient and we Mm -hmm. had a conversation with the patient right and so like all of these things that are being used every single day and the fact that they're open source and available and the democratization of ai is really what's make it so much faster for adoption, but also makes it very, very scary, which is what he's also talking about.
1: Yeah. And then it kind of leads to kind of my next question, which is, you know, I've encountered many different professionals in the education space with lots of different education roles who, who are lots that are excited, but also there are some that have a lot of um, trepidation about AI from, you know, a lot of concerns that'll negatively impact learning, Uh, It'll hurt the learners eventually, like by making them not think as much, you know, these kind of concerns, as well as anxiety around the educators themselves becoming obsolete. So how do you feel about using AI in education in general in reference to this? And then we'll talk a little bit more about gaming. A
0: hundred percent. And I think a lot of people liken it to when the internet came out and all these same conversations happened, right? You know, even the calculator, when the calculator came out, we're like, we're not going to let people use calculator to do math problems. Well, why? When they're actually in practice, doing their job, they're going to have a calculator. Mm-hmm. So why would you refrain them from using it? It's mm-hmm. the same answer with the internet. Why would we not have up-to-date available for clinicians at the point of care to actually look things up in real time? Because the entire corpus of medical information is doubling every 73 days, right? So there's impossible for them to know everything. Right. So they have to have leverage technology and is going to be no different. And I think everybody who knows this space realizes that there is definitely drawbacks. There's definitely concerns for regulation, ethics, bias, all of these things that are going to happen, but it doesn't mean we should just close our eyes and and hide under a rock until the things settle out. We need to realize how do we use this ethically and how do we enable clinicians, future clinicians to use this technology and not suffer from knowledge loss and teaching them the foundational principles that they still understand that AI is not going to do everything for them. They still have to think, they still have to have judgment, they still have to have clinical reasoning and medical decision-making. The AI is not going to do that for them, but could it look up the concentration, uh, the normal concentration of sodium in, in the urine? Yes, absolutely. That person doesn't have to remember that, right? Or the dose of this random medication. Recently, one of the medical schools stopped teaching dosages for the pharmaceuticals during the pharmaceutical block, because during the pharmacology block, because they realized you have ready access in two to three seconds for the right dose for this patient. Why right. should we spend time teaching you this? We right. should instead teach you how to use it.
1: Yeah, and also all they really need to understand is that there is a dosage or that there is a, 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 a some kind of threshold that they should be looking out for, right? Yeah, that 100%. makes a lot of sense. I was uh, watching a talk from uh, Dr. Ethan Mollick uh, the other day, and he said, um, homework is dead. And so in, in the sense of how, how do we educate students who can just use the AI to write their reflections or their papers or whatnot? And I I don't know. What do you think about that?
0: It's a great question, and I had the very esteemed fortune of sitting next to Olin Tenkate, who's probably one of my most revered uh, people in the entire education space. And we were at the Association for Medical Education Europe conference, and we were on a table together teaching people about AI and how it's going to be transformational. And he brought up, very rightly so, the epistemology question: What AI is here? And AI is going to get better. So saying, oh, well, it hallucinates. It doesn't bring in references, You know all these things. That next generation is going to solve all of these problems. So let's think long-term what this is going to look like. And his question was very true, was if this is here to stay and we're going to be a dyad between human and computer, what do we have to know, that epistemology question, and how do we prepare students to practice medicine in this environment with AI? And it's not going to go away. And uh, to quote another movie, quote is resistance is futile uh, <laughs> it it is futile you 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 have to understand that this is transformational and it is it is not going to way uh, going to go away and we need to think very critically as educators how to educate how to assess learning right that's going to be another huge because yeah. exactly as you brought up the cheating the the worry about the plagiarism, all these things that are like, oh, homework's dead because we're not going to be able to assess people. Well, we can't assess people. We just need to change the assessments, right? You know, we've been assessing the same way for, you know, decades. And obviously, it's in a new a, a new era using technology. The assessments have to change. It's not fact-based. It's not memorization anymore. It's application of knowledge. It's critical thinking, judgment, medical decision-making.
1: One of the questions of the hour is how do we prepare ourselves and learners to flourish in this AI environment because it's it's not going away. And I think that is such an important reality that we need to grapple with. Now, I I do believe that certain foundational knowledge pieces in, in really any field that learners need to know um, are necessary in order to be able to interact with um, AI, use it for brainstorming and appropriately vet its responses and converse with the critical mindset just, just like we do with other people. Uh, But I do, I do believe maybe I'm being a little naive, but I do believe that there will also be a place for folks who understand foundations of their field and bring some like humanness there that our role will change, but not actually become completely obsolete, but rather evolve. And in you know, a lot of ways, it's up to us to find and demonstrate that value in collaboration with emerging tools, uh, as it has always been. A
0: hundred percent, and you know, again, bringing back to the internet, and you know, when. All of these different technologies, like obviously like slide presenters, right? People just uploaded their old slides. They took pictures of them and put them electronically. Like, look, I'm using technology. And no, they had to change the way that they were teaching. And we still live in an environment now where we know more about how people learn, and how people learn is active. It's not passive. And we know you have to give them problem, which is problem based learning, case based learning has exploded. And still, there's still lectures in medical school. There's still lectures everywhere. Yeah. And we know you go to a conference. I went to a conference last week and literally this guy just sat up there for two hours and just talked. And (laughs) I don't I don't believe that anymore is the right way to do it. And I think that technology, leveraging technology and adapting with technology is the answer and understanding, right? So for example, the workshop this morning, we used a software called Padlet, where basically we were co-constructing knowledge. We were actually looking at AI applications, the different technologies, the use cases, the cautionary tales, the legal, ethical, moral, and regulatory implications. And we are creating a grand spreadsheet in the Padlet as the whole discussion was going on and they were adding to it. And at the end, we had this sort of co-constructed knowledge base that we then shared with the participants. And that whole active learning process is much better than sitting and pontificating about somebody uh, at somebody about AI. And I think that's how technology and two of the workshop applications that we did was one was creating a virtual patient. So they mm-hmm. were asked to do use a case-based learning, whatever it is, and uh, they w- did a breakout and they created a patient. And then the other one had to create a persona. So the chat GPT was the persona. They were the patient and they could interview the patient. And then another person did grants. So you talked about talking about brainstorming. I think first past brainstorming about grants, about research papers, all those things, that is a perfect use case and an ethical use case.
1: Yeah, you mentioned earlier Lorelei Lingard.
0: She just came out with a paper on how to ethically use ChatGPT and the good use cases and some of the learnings um, that that she found. And th- it was a fantastic paper. I actually sent it to the workshop participants and maybe we can share it with your audience. But it was a great, great like this is how education needs to leverage AI. Why have a student sit there for 30 minutes trying to create a phantom patient when ChatGPT will do it in three seconds?
1: I mean, absolutely I think the Sage on the stage has been a long and antiquated model. And perhaps the AI revolution for lack of a better word um, (laughs) and actually put it to a little bit more to rest than it ever has been there's always been resistors but i think you know this technology is really moving things forward and and to your point about you know co-constructing knowledge and and you know this active learning model also that community of learning right like so and problem-based learning and team-based learning and those all those different things they all thrive on that community and i think you know ai is just going to become another member of your community in a lot of ways you know
0: yeah, there's already study buddy applications. There's a, a ton of them popping up every day where you can quiz yourself, you know, teach the ChatGPT to be a study buddy. And ChatGPT can be your study buddy or any, any of the large language models can be your study buddy. And now there's ones that are much more academic focused and they actually can access the literature. And those are much more scholarly, right, than sort of the more you know, consumer-based, uh, large language model applications. And it literally can be your study buddy. Like, Hey, I'm really confused about how the renal tubule handles chloride. Can you explain that to me? And in an instant, you have a study buddy that can explain how the renal tubule handles that. And you're like, Oh my God, I get it now. Right. As opposed right. to having to text your friend or, you know, trust somebody who you, you know, <laughs> you know, maybe are, are looking it up, right. Which takes you forever. Um, you know, that, t- that, Access to knowledge and synthesis of knowledge is really what it is. That's why it's different from the internet. AI synthesizes, summarizes, and explains. That is so much more than what the internet already does and how it can actually be your study buddy.
1: Exactly. I mean, education science has long shown that having a one-to-one ratio to a personal teacher is a game changer. That's obviously not feasible for, in, or wasn't <laughs> feasible. I should say wasn't feasible, but yeah. kind of what you're describing now with study buddy and other models really makes that dream feasible where every single person can have a part like a, a a bot that can act in this way to teach them
0: and and think about the equity of education and the access right if you have an internet connection it's free Right. This democratization of AI and how they've gone about this allows that study buddy to be if you're at Stanford or you're in the middle of somewhere in Africa and you have an Internet connection, a computer, you have the same access to that teaching assistant. Right. I mean, that 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 leveling of the education and access is really what is the hope. And it's like you said, it's a scalable model. You can have as many TAs as you want. Right. Exactly. And I think technology in general, you know, affordable technology, I'll say, um, allows for that. You know, there's obviously some technologies that we're coming out with that the co- it's cost prohibitive to include it into lower resource settings. But, you know, the idea of telementoring, you know, I'm doing a research project with tele-mentoring right now. And it's, it, you know, access to experts anywhere you are using technology is a huge advantage, whether you're, again, in Africa or you're in Idaho, right? You know, this is this is where technology can help us and, you know, We'll t- we can talk about the overhyped metaverse at some point but the idea of virtual presence with an expert is is wonderful, right So if I could go into a virtual simulation in XR with you in in Minnesota and me in New York and we can learn in that same environment with the best teacher that's ever existed that's a that's a huge experience that otherwise I'd have to fly to Minnesota to do, which is quite right. cold although it's quite <laughs> cold here too. so but.
1: lots of people that I've talked to who are more on the uh, tentative side with AI. Um, and I've seen out there in literature uh, feel that AI is just a fad. The skeptics say it's not real. And I think that goes to your hype loop that you were talking about. What do you say about this? I know you kind of addressed it already, but let's dress it head on. How do we <laughs> respond to skeptics who claim AI is just a fad?
0: Well, they're, they're, uh, they're also the people that probably still have paper charts instead of the HR, but you know, they, you know, <laughs> there, there's definitely cynics and we need, we need cynics. I cannot understate that. We need cynics. We need people to say, this is not right, this is not going to last, because we need them to identify the areas where we just didn't think about it, right? Hmm. AI is not going to be adopted because, right? Don't just say it. Like, tell us academically and scholarly why you think it's not going to be adopted. And I think it is it is a giant tsunami, that nobody's gonna be able to hold it back. Everybody who's in this space is, although a lot of technologies get overhyped, nobody in the space has ever said, it's not going to last, that's an expert in this area, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody has pivoted to adopting AI and talking about AI and all these courses, you know, all these academics with the transformation of AI. And, you know, I think this is one thing where we could honestly say it is not Mm overhyped. We can honestly say like, this is here to last, and if you don't want to adopt it, then people who are using it are going to take your job. Mm-hmm. It, 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 unless you accept it and realize that it is going to change the way that you practice and the way that you teach, you're going to be left at the, at the wayside. Now, how much knowledge do you need to have to use it? I mean, I don't know how Siri works. I mean, I have a general sense how Siri works, yeah. but does that mean I don't I don't have to use it? I don't have to use it, but you know, I don't think it's as transformational as some of the AI technologies that we're talking about, but I can use it and still Be mindful of, okay. Well, I don't, I have privacy concerns. I have this concern, right? I, I, Hmm. things pop up on my social media that I was talking about with a friend, right? Like, there's (laughs) creepy stuff that goes on, right? Um, but I think there, there's a difference between being just a Luddite, just say, I don't accept technology, being a cynic, and then being somebody who's trying to make people critically think about the implications of AI. And I think those people are the key people to engage in the conversation, to say, why do you think that? And what are the barriers that you
1: see that maybe I'm not seeing? That's really valuable. Critical thinking is essential here and and so valuable. It makes me think about an example here where I've heard in various places that, for instance, some generative AI technologies may step in when folks try to create artistic images in the style of working contemporary artists by telling the users that they can't do that because of copyright. And with that has at times come with suggestions that the AI can say, well, I can't do that, but that artist does, you know, use this brushstroke pattern or this dimensional approach or these ratios or these color patterns. Would you like me to make something like that? and I do struggle with this, the openness and excitement that some folks might have to finding loopholes to creating these kinds of things that are everything but a name.
0: This is an important conversation. And the idea here is that, and this was brought up this morning when I was doing the workshop, that what is copyrightable? And I think it more applies to images because obviously images Mm -hmm. are much more tangible in people's eyes about how it could be copyrighted, but realize that when somebody paints a picture when somebody creates a song, they're inspired by everything that came before them, and they're creating that song with all the knowledge and experience they brought to that moment. No idea is truly original, meaning that it's never been done before. It's not inspired by anything. Those don't exist. In fact, Ed Sheeran uh, got sued. I don't know if you heard this story, but Ed Sheeran, Ed Sheeran got sued and for one of his copyright for his songs, and to the courtroom, he brought a guitar. And he started to play for them some of the songs that, you know, quote unquote, were copyrighted that they sort of say, oh, these are originals. And he basically proved to the court that nothing was original, that everything is inspired by something that came before it. And every educator is inspired by creating something based on their knowledge experience and those who inspired them. And that is a fundamental idea in AI that AI, although I asked it to create something in the style of Norman Rockwell, Is not going to be copyrighted. Like AI images are already not copyrighted. And so this idea that, oh, well, you did it based on somebody else. Everybody does that. Humans do that. Right? And you're you're not going to, you're not going to, you know, obviously, Ed Sheeran won that case because he showed that it was just inspired by all of these different artists. And it was actually an homage to those artists. And I think that's the same way I think about this technology.
1: I think the problem with that is what where I think and and maybe it's just because I'm partial as a person who (laughs) dabbles with (laughs) visual arts right Um, is that AI is not inspired by the patterns it is going to be able to exactly copy you know the kind of the the especially if someone has a consistent theme and style that is just repeated over and over again and if they are a living artist working Right now, that's a problem. And I guess that kind of bothered me. Like, ooh, I don't know which contemporary I artists we're talking about, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah, I can see that. I mean, that was the whole Eminem thing, right? You know, they, they created a rap in the style of Eminem with Eminem's voice. Mm. That's a problem, right? So yeah, yeah. if you're using the, their likeness and their voice, AI-generated voice, that's definitely a problem because then you're taking away, and I see the point is you're taking away their art form. Mm-hmm. That I see is a problem. But again, this brings up a, a a really important conversation that every institution needs to have is where is the line? Yeah. You need to ethically, morally, legally, and regulatory define the lines for those because it's going to be used. And mm-hmm. if you don't define it and you don't define those parameters, which is what our medical school is going through right now is sort of policy generation. Mm-hmm. If you don't define those parameters, you're basically living in the Wild West. And mm-hmm. and I think this is a great conversation to have, and a great way to think about it. So th- there's a whole discussion in medicine. You know, their radiologists and dermatologists are afraid for their jobs. Uh, because you know they basically do pattern recognition and that's right. exactly what the AI can do in the and obviously, obviously the computer vision stuff um and I I told the workshop people this morning I was like it's, it's not going to take their jobs their jobs is just going to change mm-hmm. I said the only people that really need to be worried are marketers and graphic designers <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> exactly exactly absolutely. right so
0: 100 <laughs> percent right so you know some of that stuff but again the idea here is, is as just as any industrial revolution is it's not necessarily going to take your job it's going to take elements of your job and your job's going to change.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: being resistance to that technology and may stifle innovation and that's the biggest mm-hmm. thing that we need to counterbalance with all these legal and regulatory things and the ethical things is we can't stifle innovation. Exactly. Like this is something that is going to potentially change and be the next industrial revolution but we need to think very critically about how to do that in the right place at the right time with the right people and the right parameters.
1: Yeah, that's exactly, you know, I agree completely. And as you said earlier, it is here to, it is here to stay. So <laughs> resistance it's, is futile. It's futile. You, you really need to learn how to work with it. And and I guess define your human value. Like you said, I feel like if you don't take the time to understand and define that and work with it and evolve along, you will be left out. And that's that's your that's your worry. <laughs> that's a hundred percent.
0: And I said it before, you know, doctors who use AI are gonna replace those that don't. And I think that that is such a critical, and you put it so eloquently, you know, the sort of your identity evolution needs to be in the setting of using AI as a clinician and as an educator. And that's what I've been trying to espouse and what I've been trying to do through all my professional developments is just just try it out. Like, that's my, that's my argument to those of the cynics, like, have you tried it? And yeah. they're like, no. I was like, well, then how can you say that it's not good and it's not going to be adopted? Just try it out. And you could see on their faces as they try it out, like, holy cow. Mm-hmm. You're like, yeah. You know, and and I think that people are very fearful for a lot of different reasons. And I think mm-hmm. people who have had these jobs for a very long time doing things that otherwise, you know, other otherwise this is threatening their jobs, is, is, if you're exactly right. And those people are the counter- Traction against uh, innovation. But I think, I think and always have been this is the history and of- always and, and I, always hated right? so 100%, right yeah. <laughs> 100% 100% you know I, I talked today about also laparoscopic surgery and you know when laparoscopic surgery came out all the open open general surgeons were like i'm not going to use that like really? that's a fad that's going to pass you know there's no way we're going to do that i'm not going to i'm i've been practicing surgery for 15 20 years i'm not going to do that and then here we are where most majority of people are doing over 50% laparoscopic surgery as part <laughs> of their practice right i mean like this yeah. is this is the resistance is fine. I mean, if you want to be if you want to resist that's fine, but understand that it could make your job easier, it can improve patient outcomes. All look at the good things that can come out of it and keep a hold of the things that you think are you're worried about, but don't make that detract from the opportunities that might come from its utilization.
1: I think wonderfully said and you know that leads me kind of to our next question. What do you think that we haven't talked about already if there is anything? that we should be cautious about when uh, engaging with different AI technologies for medical education?
0: Well, the first thing is privacy. I think everybody who's in this space right now realizes that, you know, for example, some people, other places, there was a big news article that came out that a mom had saw 17 different specialists and uploaded her child's medical problems or symptoms up into chat and came up with the actual diagnosis that the kid had that supposedly the 17 doctors missed. And so one of the things that you start to realize is some people started uploading patient data into chat GPT at the point of care, right? So if you're an ER physician or your hospitalist and you're like, I don't know what's going on and you upload that data, that is a big no-no, right? Mm. Number one, you have no idea where that data gets stored. You don't know how long it gets stored. You have no way to take that data off. And so you have to realize that privacy, I actually uploaded a few of my photos um, to generate an AI image. I was like, oh, this is really cool. We can use, and Snap. Uh, you know, Snapchat did this with a bunch of their stuff. You realize now that your face, your facial recognition yeah. is now up in the space that can yep. be utilized, right? Exactly. So I think the privacy concerns is something everybody really, really needs to know about and really needs to be cautious of. This The second is the idea of ethical use and bias. One of the things that people don't realize is that bias is there. Bias has existed for centuries, and that is informing the data and the algorithms that go into creating these algorithms and these outputs. Mm -hmm. The one tangible example I have was I was using MidJourney to create an image. I I created an escape room experience for our national meeting, our annual meeting. And I wanted to use an AI-generated image, uh, Mm -hmm. sorry, uh, to to use as like the marketing for it. And so I said, create an image of a bunch of doctors playing games as part of an escape room. You know, pretty straightforward prompt. And what it did was it created 10 white dudes in white Mm -hmm. coats right? And so if you don't realize that the bias exists, then you won't be able to mitigate the bias. And I think as clinicians, as these are algorithms are created and utilized, we need to be mindful of bias. We need to be mindful and mitigate bias. And that is the role that humans play. Mm-hmm. You asked how, what is the role humans play? The humans play by creating and refining these technologies to be the most useful, the most ethical, and the least biased. And that I'm is, thinking- I think, the biggest thing.
1: Yeah, and I also think that takes a little bit of work, um, self-reflection, self-reflexivity, understanding your own bias, growing your critical thinking skills. So all of those things, we can actually look at AI like as we need to have those skills in order to use AI in a way that is good, right? <laughs>
0: Exactly, and and also I think the, a lot a lot of the cynics were like, "Oh, well, it hallucinates, it creates references," but realize that the, this technology is going to move forward so fast that all of a lot of those problems that some of the cynics have identified are just going to go away.
1: Yeah, and even the privacy thing, I feel like we're just a hop, skip, and a jump until there's out of the box large language models that you can install in it in a protected environment that doesn't go out where data is totally internal. I think it'll yeah. happen pretty soon. Why? Yeah, like totally right. encrypted data. Yeah. 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 I
0: think I think totally encrypted data is, is definitely where one area that has to be. And I'm sure there's lots of companies that are already thinking about this. You know, there's a lot of companies that are mining EHR data. And again, those those training models are massive. And just to think about the massive information and misinformation, unfortunately, that's in the HRs and the algorithms that are being created by it. Again, another call out to anybody on this who's listening to this to get involved in this because you alone will be able to, you alone could put out forest fires. No, you, you alone (laughs) could help. You could help guide the ethical and you and useful applications of these technologies.
1: Now I know you have a special expertise in gaming as far as like bringing it all together, just with what you know and your expertise in gaming, do you see AI fitting into that in the next few years? What might we see from a... Yeah.
0: I mean, again, as we talked about games and video games specifically live on that cutting edge of technology and AI Mm -hmm. is no different. Games have been using very narrow AI, right? So NPCs, not non-player characters all the time use AI to determine their walking around, their conversations and all that stuff. So AI has been used in games for for a long, long time, decades. And so I think, again, looking to games and understanding how it's going to work, how it's going to integrate, creating more, you know, character-based conversations, right? Narration-based and how we can actually use that. You know, I always talk about empathy and how we're trying to teach empathy and why not have a game to teach empathy and having some kind of difficult conversation with somebody through, through a conversation or a chatbot through a game. You know, also realize that, you know, procedurally generated, con- procedurally generated content lives in games, right? So, uh, you know, instead of like, Drawing every character, they use procedurally generated content to say, okay, every character is going to have this shade, or you know, pick between these shades, or create this explosion. And this explosion, they don't have to draw each things. It's like you know the claymation where they had to move every single thing. They don't have to do that anymore, right? They just procedurally generate and say, okay, uh, this building is going to explode. Figure out how that's what that's going to look like. And I think in medicine, we're going to realize that games are able to enable this procedural generated content to create new characters, new diseases, uh, have avatars that. can can actually create symptoms on screen that mimic something that we would see in real life. And it's going to change how we do simulation. It's going to change how we do education and understanding how we can leverage that technology and the psychology of video games to change how we're teaching, understanding how AI is empowering these conversations, how AI is building these scenarios and these virtual patients is really kind of the exciting thing for me. And I think we're going to see some stuff over the next five, 10 years.
1: Yes, yeah, So it's almost like the future of Truly immersive, dynamic, responsive, creative scenarios, I guess, or simulations. A thousand percent. Yeah, is a thousand percent is upon us in a way that was always something that we imagined or was part of sci-fi right before now.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's like Ready Player One, right? I mean, you mm-hmm. you, you watch Ready Player One, you know, obviously it's an apocalyptical, you know, story. Uh, but you know, just the idea that we can immerse ourselves into a totally virtual environment where you know the metaverse is, uh, and uh, you know, but but have it be specific to healthcare and have it specific to healthcare education and doing team-based training, communications-based training, skill-based training, all these things enabling all the different technologies, including AI, gaming, XR, you know, you can imagine a world very, very quickly where those technologies are being leveraged to change how education is delivered long before they ever get to the patient's bedside. Realize that medical students starting today were born in like 2002, 2003. Mm-hmm. So they've never known a world without technology. They've never known a world without cell phones, you know, you know for, the, for most of their adult life. Like think about the technologies that they've grown up with. And they also live in an era of personalization. Mm -hmm. Everybody has their own home screen, their own cover for their phone. Everybody has their own avatar for their Snapchat. Like, you know, they have their own TikTok account. They expect personalization. And technology is going to enable personalized learning instead of us just training people in hordes like cows in a a field. We're gonna be able to personalize learning. And I think that is one thing we didn't touch on where AI is really gonna enable dynamic serving of content for users to enable them to be the most efficient learning possible. You need to work on this. Everybody else is learning this, but you specifically already know that we're going to dynamically serve you content that's going to educate you on this because that's where we think you're deficient with this idea where we could up-level you based on your education and really focus and harness. You know, if we're gonna do four years, let's say, let's say for example, we we'll say, we're not gonna do time-variable time, to time variable training. Let's say you're here for four years. Mm-hmm. But for, for during those four years, we're gonna focus on the things you need to learn. For example, the example I always give is somebody has a PhD in neuroscience. They have to take neuroscience in medical school. Mm-hmm. They know more than some of the professors, right? And so like, why are we wasting their time? They could be exactly. teaching this class. Right. So instead you say, OK, you have a PhD in neuroscience. We're going to we're going to sort of assess where you're at and then dynamically change your curriculum based on your expertise and actually give you the training that you need instead of just teaching you at, at the yeah. mass level.
1: It's going to be so powerful when those things, when those tools become. And I know they're they're being invented right now. I was going to say they're
0: already here. Edgem yeah. Knowledge Plus already exists. So yeah, that's you know, true. There, there
1: is a lot of t- technology that already supports that. Yeah. Another piece that I believe young learners are used to is customization, right? That idea that all content is accessible and can be remixed for your personalization. In a lot of ways, I think that AI is going to make that even easier for individuals to achieve. And, you know, maybe this is a lot of just in my imagination and hopes, but imagine imagine a world. Uh,
0: no, so you know, when we're we're right now at our medical school going through a curriculum renewal, trying to realize how we can train the future doctors of twenty thirty five, essentially. And I think one of the things that came up and was very rightly so was, for the longest time, the onus on creating curriculum content was on the professors, mm-hmm. right? It was on the teachers, but we live in a world of user generated content. Mm-hmm. Right. Think about everything that goes up on Facebook, that goes up on TikTok, all these social media, all this content. Now the tools are in the hands of the users. So why are we not using the medical students to create the assets and the content that everybody else is going to learn on? And how can we leverage that to be able to create lasting assets, right? So the professors no longer have to create the curriculum. The actual act of the students creating the curriculum is the learning. Yeah, you know, we talked say, about that. This is like yeah, exactly
1: curating and creation. Asking Collect. your learners to create is going to actually help them learn better than just a thousand percent, right? But that was mm-hmm. a f- so far
0: off comment that people were just like shell shocked. They're like, what do you mean the medical students would create their own content? <laughs> you know, and I was like, well, that is the learning, like, right? That co creation yeah. of, of learning is in that community of, of learning that you talked about is going to be a way that we can take the onus off of the faculty for creating content, instead put them in a refining and judging and uh, and allowing them to critique and have them focus their efforts on that instead of creating content. And there's really a flattening of education that's happened across the board, right? There used to be vertical transmission of information, and now it's more, hor- much more horizontal, right? Mm-hmm. Students learn from each other, right? We talked about the study buddies and learning from each other, and that's such a powerful thing. But you know, actually having them generate the content and having that in a supervised way, and our medical school actually did that through our case-based learning. So they have case-based learning uh, projects that they create those patients, and then they go do you know case-based learning modules based on those, and they generate the questions. And again, thinking about how maybe a large language model could help generate those patients so they don't have to spend 30, 40 minutes, two hours to make up lab values and make up backstories, right? right. Like, ChatGPT will do that right away. And so then trying to use that to say, okay, well, what part of it is the student can generate? What part is ChatGPT going to generate? And what do they actually need to know to do that? And uh, for me, what that is, is that's them student critically appraising the outputs of ChatGPT and saying, oh, well, that lab value doesn't make sense. Like, you know, it says it's 147, but really the sodium should be more like 142. And you don't realize that like how much, edu- how much well, the high level of learning, the mm-hmm. Bloom's level to understand that the ChatGPT output didn't jive with what this clinical scenario is, that's way higher than them sitting and Definitely. passively sitting through this,
1: right? Yes, absolutely. Is there any particular application or manifestation of AI in education that you've seen that's your favorite, that you find exciting <laughs> or inspiring? We,
0: we just talked about it, but I honestly think that personalized learning because mm-hmm. we're talking a lot about personalized medicine, right? We're talking mm-hmm. about digital twins and how AI is able to create, you know, a a, a Stacey Craft, and you know, if Stacey Craft has hypertension or you know has a, has a mole, what 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 medicine do we know is going to work for them based on the profile that we have of that digital twin of mm-hmm. Stacey, right? And so for me, like that is an amazing thing that we could do with education. That is an amazing thing that we can think about uh, for personalizing and thinking about how most efficiently we can train our medical professionals for a job in the future. And I think AI is going to help us do that and help us predict and assess what their level of learning is and, and progress them based on those assessments. That That's another thing that needs to change is the assessments, right? You know, So when AI was asked to take the USMLE, it didn't get 100%. And if you ask any educator why it didn't get 100%, it wasn't because the AI didn't know it, it was because the assessments were terrible. When we're trying to create models where we would do personalized learning, the assessment has to match the -hmm. model such that it truly predicts if that person was going to be able to know that and actually have that knowledge to be able to move forward into the curriculum.
1: Wonderful insights. Thank you so much for being on today. I really appreciated it. Today's podcast was edited by Jaquan Leonard. If you have any ideas for upcoming episodes or would like to send an email, contact us at edufi at mayo.edu.